You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Go ahead and have a seat, please. If you are new with us or you haven't been with us in a little while, we're going through the book of John. Uh, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 6, which is the longest chapter in all of John, and we're going to spend about three weeks on it, so we're going to cover a lot um, today. We're going to be specifically in John chapter one or chapter six verses uh, one through thirty-four, uh, and I want to tell you the more and more I study this book, the more and more time I spend in this book, the more and more I am astonished by what John has done with through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in writing this 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 account of Jesus. It's a masterpiece, especially when we look at how he builds his story and how it's layer upon layer of just majesty of who Jesus is. And like I told you last week, I want you to keep remembering that as we're reading the New Testament, we have to keep in our mind the things that happened in the Old Testament. Like we can't really understand, we can't truly comprehend what Jesus is doing in the New Testament if we don't understand and see what he has done in the Old. Uh, Today we're going to look at at sign four and five that Jesus does in the Gospel of John. Uh, The fourth sign, he feeds the 5,000 people, and the, the fifth sign, he walks on water. Now, one of the things about the signs in the book of John, there are seven of them. We've already talked about three of them, right? We've already talked about him turning water into wine, him healing the official son, right? And then him making the lame man walk again. So these, th- these next two are just as miraculous. Now, in, in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, or, I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, actually, let me tell you this, four in all four of the Gospels, there's only one miracle that's recorded that, that's consistent in all four of them. And it's the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. All four Gospels have this. Now, in, in Matthew, Mark, and John, right, um, this miracle is followed by the walking on water event, Jesus walking on the water. But it's not in Luke. Luke omits that, that, that retelling of Jesus' life. Why does he do that? Well, Matthew, Mark, and, Luke, and John are all Jewish people. Luke is not a Jew, right? He's not Jewish. And so he's, they're writing, Matthew, Mark, and John, they're writing to a Jewish audience. And why does that matter? Well, because the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water is a direct callback to the Exodus. And you're like, I don't know how you understand that. I'm, I'll explain it to you. But it's a direct callback to the Exodus and Moses. Now here's the connection. The Israelites and the Jewish people have two unforgettable events that happen in the Exodus story. One is the the splitting of the Red Sea, right? The the water event where where God makes the Red Sea split and they walk across on dry land. The other is when they're wandering in the desert and the manna comes down from heaven. That God provides food for them all throughout their 40-year journey in the desert or in the wilderness. And so what we're going to learn is that those events in the wilderness were simply a shadow of what is to come in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the fulfillment of those events. And John, in his brilliance, puts on full display that account here. Remember that John chapter 5, the the chapter we just finished last week, he pointed out that the Jewish leaders didn't really understand Moses, right? They didn't really believe Moses. If you go back to John chapter 5, verse 45 through 47, here's what he says. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. 
For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Or he, and he could have added, how will you believe my deeds? Right? He had pointed out to the Jewish leaders that they really didn't trust Moses. They didn't really believe Moses, because if they had, they would have known that he was who he says he was. So John uses this, this feeding of the 5,000, this walking on water to show them that they should believe who he is, because he is the greater Moses. Before we begin in our text today, let's go to the word, uh, Lord with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are so consistent in what you tell us, that, that there's just weaving together of these miraculous things, Lord. That this is truly a book that could only have been written by a divine hand. Lord, that it is through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that John records these events. And these events point to a truth that is greater than we could ever imagine. And Lord, I pray that as we study and as we read and as we understand, Lord, that you would illuminate those scriptures for us. That you would show us that Jesus is the greater Moses that he is the one who came to fulfill all the promises so that we could have relationship with you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 6, verse 4. Or John chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was, followed, was following him because they saw signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Verse 4, now the Passover a Jewish festival, was near. So John sets up the setting, right? We learn that after some time, that means after the healing of the lame man, Jesus comes to this wilderness, right? It's clear that Jesus had, Jesus had just cleared out the temple, the, the money changers in the temple at the first Passover. We read that in John chapter 2. So this is about a year later. This is about a year later that, that this is happening. We're not sure how far it is between the account of him healing the lame man and this happens, but we do know that it's about a year from when he went into Jerusalem and flipped the money changers' tables. This is the second Passover that John tells us about in his gospel. Why does he mention Passover? Remember I told you when we started this journey through the book of John that Passover is a key theme in John's gospel. The Passover was a celebration of God's people, right? A celebration of God saving his people from Egypt delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh. And it wasn't just a celebration of that event, but it was also a celebration of God sustaining them through their wilderness journey, through their wilderness journey until they got into the promised land. Now get this, the setting of this miracle also happens in the wilderness. And Jesus is up on a mountain in the middle of nowhere. The people following him are wandering around and looking for him. And he sits down on this mountain. Now, mountains have a, a huge significant history or a huge significant place in Jewish history. When God meets man outside of the tabernacle, it's always at a mountain. You think about Moses on the Mount Sinai or when Abraham sacrifices Isaac on the mount as well. Mountains are symbolic because it is where heaven meets earth. And here God is in the flesh meeting his people on a mountainside. Notice why this crowd was following him. They were following him because they had seen his healings. They had seen what he could do. Him healing the sick. He was doing miraculous things. So they figured that if he can heal these people, then maybe he can do something for us. 
Maybe he can heal us. Maybe he can do something for us. And it's again another crowd of people intrigued by what Jesus can do, but not by who Jesus is. So in these four opening verses, we see a similarity between Jesus and Moses. Jesus is leading a crowd in the wilderness, much like Moses is leading a crowd after leaving Egypt. The crowd is following Jesus because of the signs he did, much like the Israelites followed Moses because of the signs he did in Egypt with the ten plagues. Jesus and his disciples go up on a mountain just like Moses did, and they meet with God. This event happened around Passover, which is a celebration feast established by God through Moses. So what happens on the mountain? What happens on this mountain? What is this this event that takes place? Well, verse 5 starts to tell us. When Jesus looked up up and noticed the huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? So there's a problem. There's a problem here. There are people, there's a crowd, and they're going to get hungry. They're going to get hungry. And if they're not hungry already, I mean, if they're my wife, they're probably already hungry. Love you, baby. Um, Much like I can hear some of y'all's bellies rumble right now. You're like, Josh, get on with it. I'm kind of hungry right now. Um, So Jesus looks at Philip. He looks at Philip and says, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all of these people? And Philip, being practical, right, and and being a problem solver, looks out at the crowd, and he starts to calculate in his mind. He says, 200 denarii would not be enough to feed just a little bit to each one of those. Now, to us, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. What is denarii? Well, one denarius was about a day's wage. So he's saying eight months' wage would not be able to feed these people just even a smidgen. They may just have to take the bread and lick it, and that'd be gross, right, if they just took a little lick of it. Um, how, many, how many licks does it take to get to the sensor of Tootsie Pop? No. Um, so obviously, by human logic, Jesus knows that there's nothing that they can do, right? The physics of the universe, you cannot just make bread but Jesus is not contained or constrained by the physics of the universe. He is Almighty God. So he knew what he was going to do. He was asking Philip, and he was asking Andrew, and he was asking his disciples, do you think that I can do this? Do you think that I'm able to do this? And so then Andrew shows up, and he finds this boy with five barley loaves and two fish. These would have been pickled fish or salted fish. They would have been small, um, and they would have been just basically like a paste that you could rub on the bread to get a little bit of flavor to get a little bit of protein. And these loaves, when we think loaves, we don't think like baguettes, right? These were probably more like biscuits. They're small little barley loaves. And the important thing about this is barley was a very cheap ingredient. And these people in this area that Jesus is in are very poor. And this is their staple diet, these salted fish and these little barley loaves. And yet there's only five loaves and two fish. How, is, how are they going to eat? One of the things we need to realize for these people is getting food was a daily battle for them. It was something they struggled with. They couldn't just run down to H-E-B. They couldn't just run down to SAS. They couldn't just run down to, to Walmart and pick up food. They had to grow their food and make their food, and sometimes they didn't have enough food. And Jesus is looking out, and all these people, they're in the middle of nowhere. How are we going to feed these people, Philip says. Philip I, I don't know how we're going to feed them. And even if they did have enough money, they couldn't just run down to the store, right? 
Jesus knew that he was about to do something amazing, something supernatural. And he does this because of the compassion he has on the crowd. Here's what we have to realize. The God that we serve, the God that we love, the God of the universe is concerned with the problems that we're facing. He has compassion on people. He sees our needs. He hears our cries. He knows our hearts. And he's a good God that provides for us. And that's exactly what he's about to do. John chapter 6, verse 10, it says this. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in this place, so they all sat down. The, number, the men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed to them, to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. There's a feast that happens here on the side of the mountain. With five barley loaves and two fish, Jesus produces a feast. Jesus has everyone sit down on the ground. There's plenty of grass. It's like the the great shepherd is going to feed his sheep. And they're on this mountainside. And here we learn that there are 5,000 men present. This doesn't include, Matthew tells us, this does not include women and children. So that's meaning that there's probably closer to fifteen to 20,000 people there on the side of the mountain that Jesus has to feed. Fifteen to 20,000 hungry bellies. And Jesus, what does he do? He takes that bread and he gives thanks. This is the, the giving thanks is the, the word Eucharist that we get, where we get the Eucharist word from. And Jesus takes that bread and he gives thanks. And when he is giving it, he gives it and everybody has enough to eat. Not only do they have enough to eat, but they have enough to be full. They have enough to be satisfied. When he gives thanks, he probably said a prayer similar to this. He said, Blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who bringest forth bread from the earth. And like the father sitting down at the head of the table, he distributes the food and gives thanks. He distributes the bread and the fish to all those who are seated. They are full. They've been satisfied. You see, Jesus didn't just provide enough. He provided more than enough. Twelve baskets full. And the, after the crowd had eaten, 20,000 bellies filled and 12 baskets of leftovers. Our God is astonishing. He's amazing. He's miraculous. It's amazing that he can take what is insignificant and make it more than enough. That he can take what's insignificant and make it more than enough. The crowd had nothing to complain about because their bellies were full. And this runs in stark contrast to the Israelites in the desert. Right? As the manna fell down, all they could do was complain about what God was providing for them. This isn't what we want, God. Not anymore. So after they complain a little bit, he provides quail for them. Then what do they do? They complain some more. But these men and these women and these children were satisfied. Jesus provides a bread and has enough stuff left over because Jesus is the bread bringer. Those who were always concerned about where their next meal was coming from And for that moment, they were satisfied. Each and every one of them. 
Now this is complete conjecture and speculation on my part because it doesn't tell us this in the text, but we can kind of guess from their lifestyle that there were often times where these men and these women did not have full bellies. And it's possible to believe that many in that crowd had not been satisfied with food for a long time. And here Jesus meets that need. He has compassion on the ground, on the crowd. And it demonstrates his compassion and empathy with every person who is having difficulty, with every person who is suffering. In this crowd, they somewhat get what is happening, right? They say, this truly is the prophet who came into the world. And the prophet they're talking about is the prophet that Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And they are partially right. They partially got Jesus right, that he is the prophet, but he's much more than the prophet. So they're intrigued with the signs that Jesus has done. They're intrigued with the fact that he fed these 20,000 people on the side of the mountain. And so they say, we want this man to be our king. We want to take this man and we want to make him lead us in a revolt against Rome. They wanted a Jesus of their own mind. They wanted a savior of their own mind, not the savior that actually came. They wanted him to lead them in a revolt, but he wanted to lead them into salvation. Jesus didn't come to lead a revolt. Jesus came to lead people to salvation. So he slips off from the crowd. He knows the intention of their heart, so he slips off. But John isn't through showing us who the greater Moses is. So in verse 16 it says this, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind rose and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed for about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board. And once the boat was on the shore where they were heading, and at once the boat was on the shore where they were heading. So Jesus walks on water. He walks on water. After Jesus goes to be alone, The disciples get in a boat and they start going across the sea. They don't make it too far before a storm comes upon them. And the sea is near near mountains and so the winds come down really quickly and can start a commotion pretty quickly. It was a dark and stormy night on the sea. And Mark tells us that Jesus saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And about three to four miles across the sea, they see Jesus start approaching them. They see him start walking towards them, and, I mean, wouldn't you be afraid? Somebody's walking on water. We're three to four miles out in the the sea, and we see this figure start walking towards us, and they were terrified. They didn't know what to think. There was a man coming towards them walking on the water. Here's the thing. Jesus, the creator of the world, has dominion over everything in the world, including the water. And this also is a foretelling or a, a, a sh- the, the real thing of what happened in, in the, the Red Sea, right? Where Jesus has control over the water. So he can make it split or he can simply walk on it, whatever he wants to do, because he is in control. He can do what he wants and he will. Many scholars also see that this walking on water is reminiscent of the Genesis account in Genesis chapter 1 where the Spirit of the Lord is hovering over the waters of the deep before the creation of the world. 
And so these disciples see this man walking towards them and they're terrified. Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. But sometimes our English translations fail us a little bit. I love the English because that's what I read, right? But sometimes it does fail us. This phrase, it is I, is actually the phrase ego eimi in Greek. Now this is important, and I don't talk a lot about Greek and Hebrew from the pulpit, but I want you to know that it's important. This ego eimi phrase is super important because what it is, it is the, the Greek translation of God's name from the Hebrew. Remember when Moses is at the burning bush and he asks the burning bush who it is that I should tell them sent me, and he says, I am sent you. This is what Jesus is saying. Ego eimi means I am. And in John's gospel, Jesus says I am a lot. So ego eimi means I am. So Jesus here doesn't say it is I. Don't be afraid. He says I am. Don't be afraid. I am the God that you have longed for, the God that you wanted to meet. I am him. The king of the universe is standing right in front of them on the choppy waters, revealing to him, to them, that he is the same God that Moses heard in that burning bush. They don't need to be afraid because God is with them. God is on their side. I am is with them. And as soon as Jesus steps into the boat, they cross the shoreline, or they're at the shoreline, across the sea. Verse 22. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea, saw that there had only been one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with the disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got out of, into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So there's a confused crowd. He had left the crowd, and they did not see him get in the boats with his disciples. So they, 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 they're looking for him. Where did Jesus go? And so they got on boats and crossed the sea to go find him. And they found him. And they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? And I can imagine his disciples looking at him going, if you only knew, if you only knew what had just happened, you would be even more amazed. So Jesus responds to them when they say, Rabbi, where, when did you get here? He answered them in verse 26. He says, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, This is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may believe in you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness just as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then, then they said, sir, give us this bread always. You see, Jesus is more than just a miracle. 
Jesus is pushing a back against the crowd. He knows the hearts of man, and he knows that it isn't him that they want. They want what he can do. Like the woman at the well, like Nicodemus, like Philip, and like Andrew, they cannot see what is truly going on. They want temporary satisfaction. They want to avoid the work of life. They want the bread, but they don't want the bread giver. They don't want the bread of life. They want the bread that will fill their bellies. They want that that will perish. They seek what satisfies them in just the moment. But Jesus wants them to pursue what will endure, what will last, what is eternal. He's saying stop focusing on your belly and start focusing on your soul. Work for the food that lasts, the food of eternal life. Now this can be a little confusing and confounding for us when he says that we need to work for this stuff. We have to work for it? We have to work for this eternal life? No, because once they ask him what the work is, what does he respond? He says, Jesus replied, the work of God is this, that you believe in the one that God has sent. So how do we receive eternal life? We believe We place our faith in, we place our trust in, we place our hope in the one that God has sent. And yet these people still don't believe. They want another sign. How are you going to prove to me, Jesus, that you are who you say you are? What are you going to do to convince me? It's a question that's asked a lot. Because it wasn't about the bread, and it wasn't about what Moses did. They wanted more evidence, they wanted more proof, they wanted... Everything except for Jesus. They wanted excuses not to believe that he is who he says he is. They missed the point just like they missed the point with Moses. They missed the point just like they missed the point with other prophets. They missed the point like they missed the point of the manna, of the splitting of the Red Sea. It wasn't about those events. It was about the one who would come. It was about Jesus. Verse 32 and 33, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives to you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is the bread of heaven that gives life. He's the bread from heaven that sustains. He is the bread from heaven that satisfies and transforms and, and gives us what we need. And what do we need? We need eternal life. We don't need for our temporary problems to be fixed. We need our eternal problems to be fixed. And our eternal problem is that we are separated from a holy and righteous and just God, and we need forgiveness. We need reconciliation, and that is only done through Jesus Christ. Listen, you may be sitting here, and you may be asking, how does all this matter? Why does Jesus keep talking about bread, and why does Josh keep talking about bread? What does all this have to do with me? Well, here's the thing. It's not about bread. It's about the longing in your soul. It's about the emptiness that you fill. It's about all that you chase down to satisfy you that will never truly satisfy you. Jesus talks to this crowd about bread because it was a daily struggle for them. They didn't know where their next meal would come from. They would fret and they would worry about their stomachs being full. So what's your thing? What is it that you are chasing after? What is it that you want to satisfy you? What are you searching for? What is it? What ache do you have that you want soothed? Is it money? Is it popularity? What is it 
that you're looking for. Because just like this crowd, you will never find rest. You will never find solace. You will never find sustenance or satisfaction outside of Jesus. You can chase after all those things that are going to perish. Or you can turn to Jesus. You can believe in him. You can trust in him and he will satisfy you. We were talking about Bible study this Wednesday night and how arrogant it is for us to ask God or demand things from God. This crowd was demanding things from Jesus. Jesus, give us a sign. Show us who you are. Like he owes them anything. He doesn't owe them anything, right? He's not indebted to them in any way. He simply is good and gracious, so he provides for them. Just like that, God doesn't owe us anything, right? He doesn't owe us everything, anything, but yet he gave us everything, right? He gave us Jesus. He gave us Jesus that came to save us, to rescue us, to sustain us, to satisfy us. And if God never does another thing for us, Jesus is enough. So what do you believe? Do you trust in Jesus? Or are you going to continue the rat race? Are you going to continue chasing your tail? Are you going to continue to eat the bread of this world that will never satisfy your soul? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with who Jesus is? I want to go ahead and invite my ushers down real quick. We're going to... Um... Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.